we make a plan. The plan has a higher level of certainty and commitment up front and a lower level of commitment and certainty as we move further downstream. Now, again, we are committing to hypotheses, right? We are committing to key results and we reserve the right to kill those hypotheses if it turns out that they do not further our progress towards the key results for this quarter. Welcome to Dreams with Deadlines, a podcast by GTM Hub about aligning strategy execution and promoting outcome-driven cultures through the proven objectives and key results methodology. I'm your host, Jenny Harold, VP of Product Evangelism at GTM Hub. Why does planning require a season? How can we be more agile in killing ideas? What happens after OKRs? In this episode, I'm joined by Jeff Gotthelf, a coach, speaker, author, and consultant who helps organizations build better products and executives build the cultures that build better products. We discuss the issue with having a planning season and how we can plan better, the jobs to be done when we hire lean startup, agile, and design thinking practices, and how to treat roadmaps in light of OKRs. Let's jump in. So today I am really excited because I am joined by Jeff Gottelf. Because I'm in Berlin, Germany, I've, I realize I can pronounce your name correctly. So that makes me happy. Welcome to the show. Thanks for being on Dreams with Deadlines. I'm thrilled to be here, Jenny, and, and well done there. Yeah, there's a lot of pressure if you're, if you're either German or live in Germany to, to pronounce my last name correctly. They, they always do a great job whenever I'm in Germany. So thank you for doing that. So let's, let's start with the question that everyone asks on a podcast. I wish everyone knew us, but they don't. So who, who's Jeff? What are you about? And how'd you get where you are? It's interesting. I started off as a broke musician. I'll give you the really fast version of this, but I, I started off wanting to be a rock star and a broke musician. And what's interesting about that is that in hindsight, that was sort of the beginning of my entrepreneurial journey. At the time, it, you know, I never would have said that or thought that. But in hindsight, you know, being in bands is like being in startups. It's you and, and your best friends. You have a great idea. You think you can change the world and everybody should love everything that you're doing. You pour everything you have into it. And, you know, you sacrifice everything to try to make a viable entity, really a business out of it, to be perfectly fair. And I did that for a long time. And those guys to this day are, are the guys I did that with are still my best friends. And, and when that failed, I, joined, I, I became a web designer and then a UX designer and design manager. And then about halfway through my profession, my post rock star, my failed rock star attempt, I was working on as, as, a, as a UX design manager in New York, building a team in a high growth startup. And uh, we had to figure out how to design in an agile software development environment. And that proved challenging and really a problem that no one had really solved as of yet at that time. We worked hard with my team and other folks outside of my team and around the US. And uh, we came up with a solution. And it's not the only solution, but it's a solution. And uh, my co-author, Josh Seiden, and I called it Lean UX and wrote a book about it. And after the book got published, everything changed. So for the last 10, 12 years, I have been teaching, consulting, training, and speaking about lean UX, organizational agility, digital transformation. And most recently in the last few years about objectives and key results, which I believe to be the gateway drug to agility, if you will. And I mean, in the most positive sense, I know it's a kind of a yeah. terrible metaphor to use, but I do <laughs> the sort of the leading in, you know, part to, to organizational agility. And so I work today as, as a, again, a consultant, trainer, a public speaker, and author on those topics. 
and I'm self-employed these days and have been for the last six or seven years. That is quite the ride. Yeah. Very, 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 cool. very fast, very fast overview of that. No, I think that's awesome. Okay. So it's safe to say it seems like that you didn't necessarily plan this entire thing in the same way I think we're going to lead into something that is probably top of mind for a lot of corporates out there. We're in the planning season right now, right? So October, November, December for the new year. And organizations are discussing all of the things, budgets, what's going to get built, the return on investment for the different programs and projects they're thinking about doing, the estimated delivery dates for those, the personnel needs, all that stuff. And something that I read that you wrote recently spoke about the ROI on the planning season. And you promote a different way to think about approaching this. Can you discuss what you mean by the planning season firstly, and why you think that there should be a different way to go about the end of year into the new year? Yeah. So let's talk about the language, right? I think language is Mm -hmm. so important. And the language that we use really determines not only how we think about our work, but how we do the work and and the expectations that we set for the work. So it's called planning season, right? Which already gives it a a heft, a weight, a sense of, a sense of scope that is this is going to be big, right? And so we we set those expectations immediately when we say planning season. Now look, there was a time where upfront planning and a heavy investment in that made sense. And that time was when we worked with a degree, a high degree of certainty and a low degree of risk in the work that we do. And so, for example, even like, for example, if you work in manufacturing today, at the very least, when it comes to the production of the product, there's a high degree of certainty and a low degree of risk. You know what it's going to look like when it's done. You know the cost of the parts and the components and the materials that go into it. You know what it costs you to make one thing and a million things and 10 million things. And so you can plan upfront for that. But for the overwhelming majority of organizations that are driven by software and technology these days, we don't have the luxury of that certainty. And we don't have the luxury of that low risk environment. We live in a highly volatile um, business environment. We live in a continuously changing and hopefully improving world. And we live in a, in a, in a world of geopolitical and social instability. And so that level of, of certainty that you need to spend a season, right? What's a se- I mean, it's a minimum of a month in most organizations. And usually it's more than that. Certainly more than a month's worth of work goes into it to be able to dedicate that much effort to predicting the future is incredibly risky, right? So if you're going to spend four, six or eight weeks working on studying, researching, and then negotiating and finalizing an agreement within your organization that says next year, I need $10 million and I'm going to spend that $10 million exactly in this way. And I'm going to get this return on that investment and we will produce these 12 things, right? That is a lie. It's, it's, it's going to be wrong. Now, I'm not saying you're going to be totally wrong, right? You're not going to be a hundred percent wrong, but you're going to be wrong. And so we take a tremendous amount of risk when we spend that much effort on a plan that is inevitably going to be wrong. 
But because we call it planning season and because we're so used to working this way, right? There's a hundred years of top-down command and control management historical inertia that pushes us in this direction that um, it's really, really hard to break out of this. And sadly, the modern nature of business being software-driven doesn't conform to this way of working anymore. If that's the case, right, it's not to say that you are against planning altogether. I don't think that's what you mean here. And certainly it would be kind of ludicrous to say, let's have a planning season every quarter. <laughs> Given how hefty the definition of, of that that idea is, if there is a better way, what is that better way? So let's be clear, right? So, so again, you're right. Having a planning season every quarter means that we are essentially planning all year long and not actually doing anything. Uh, so, so yeah, so let's, let's, this, and this is interesting because every time you, every time I do my best not to speak in absolutes, like the, one of the, the breakthrough articles that I wrote about Lean UX back in the day was, it was called Lean UX Getting Out of the Deliverables Business. And mm. so many people read that as throwaway deliverables, all of them forever and never use them again. And it's not what I wrote, right? It's not what I wrote. I just said that that shouldn't be the focus of our work. Like we need to create artifacts they just aren't the work. The artifacts just further the conversation. And so they're transient and we shouldn't invest too heavily in them because our goal is actually to build products, right? In the same sense here, right, to say, well, we don't need a planning season. It doesn't mean that we don't need to plan. We have to make a plan, but we have to treat that plan as what it is, right? Which is our best guesses about what's going to happen and what we think we should do about it and what we hope to see as a result of that. And so if we're going to treat it as a guess, as an assumption, as a hypothesis, then we need to assess the accuracy of those guesses more frequently. And in that situation, I would say, yes, we need a quarterly, at the very least, a quarterly check-in, right? A quarterly check-in on the plan. We made a plan, right? So for example, look, I'm not against the CFO saying, okay, team, you can have $10 million for next year, but here's the deal. I'm going to give you two and a half million for Q1. Now you, you've told me what you plan on doing. Terrific. Go forth and do that. And at the end of Q1, we're going to get together for an hour and you're going to tell me what happened. How did you spend the two and a half million? Did you spend the two and a half million? What did you do? What did you ship? What did you learn? What kind of progress did you make? How many of your assumptions were correct? How many new assumptions do you have? And if you make a compelling enough case, I'll give you another two and a half million. So again, like the, the, the conversation is still there to say, look, this is the big plan for the year, but I am only, we're only going to, to fund it in quarterly increments or in two month cycles. And then we're going to check in and see how we're doing. And if it still makes sense to do this work, right? Imagine, look, I, the story I always tell is about, um, October 2008. I got my job in New York City as the director of user experience at the ladders. The Ladders at the time was a job search board for people who made $100,000 or more. And I got my job in the beginning of October of 2008. And three weeks later, Lehman Brothers melted down and the financial crisis began. Right. Wow. And, and job search is like, it's, it's like online dating, right? It's, it's a two-sided marketplace. It's just mm -hmm. like, like we actually looked at dating sites for inspiration. And you need a balanced ecosystem of jobs and job seekers. Like that's how the system right. works. And if the system's out of balance, it doesn't work. And um, we had a pretty good balanced system. We had nine months of planning ready to go. And then Lehman Brothers melted down. And then overnight, literally, literally, this is not even, you know, people say overnight and they don't mean it. I literally mean it. 
We went to sleep. We woke up the next day and our ecosystem was, Lehman Brothers melted down and our ecosystem was completely out of bounds. We had exponentially more job seekers and exponentially fewer jobs, Mm. right? Overnight. Now we had a nine month roadmap. We negotiated it. We committed to it. Like, what do you do in that situation? Do you just, well, we made a plan and and we spent the season arguing about who's going to get what and how much we're going to spend. Shouldn't we just, you know, bury our heads in the sand and keep moving forward? And of course the answer is no, right? The pandemic proved that as well, right? There's these, these things that happen that don't work this way. I'll tell you one more anecdote and then I'll let you ask your next question because I have a good story about this. A few years ago, a couple of colleagues and I were doing some executive coaching at a uh, one of the big US banks, one of the top US banks. And we were working with the executive team about organizational agility and digital transformation. And one of the executives we were working with, she was already with it. She, she, was, she was fantastic. She knew, she understood this. She didn't need our help. It was her colleagues who really needed us. And she was in charge of this backend system at the bank, this big, and it was big, legacy, messy, 10, 15 year old system that rehabilitated credit card users who had gone in default. So the idea was, okay, you've defaulted, mm-hmm. but we, we want you back if you're kind of, you got, kind of got your stuff back together, right? And so the, the people who were build, building that system, they wanted to replatform that system because it was old and antiquated. They wanted to take what they, what they do called a, a lift and shift, right? You take a system off an old platform, you lift it and you shift it onto a new modern tech platform, right? That's the work. And they estimated the work at being uh, a two year project and a $20 million expense. Yeah, right. That, and that was their plan. They had negotiated and, and planned that out. And they came to this executive and they said to her, they said, we need, you know, $20 million in two years to do this. And she said, look, I understand the need. I understand the goal. I'm going to give you six months and $5 million and come back after six months and $5 million and show me value. Show me that you were able to deliver value with that kind of time frame and that kind of money. And I'll give you another six months and another 5 million. And their minds were blown just blown. They couldn't see it, right? They couldn't see it because they were so used to this eternal planning process and negotiation process. And they had done it and they were committed to it. And they couldn't understand how you could possibly deliver value in a shorter time frame and learn whether or not the work that you're doing is actually going to deliver the value that you hope for the money and the time and the people that you're spending on it. And so to me, this there's, it's significantly riskier to do planning season than it is to, to not do it. Like, there's just too much volatility and we don't know what's going to happen. And so, uh, we need to kind of reduce the cycle time, check in more frequently, and then adjust course based on what we're learning. It's not that we're against planning, right? No. And it's not like we are against funding or even time horizons in which we will do the work. The difference is the definition of those constraints. We might have just defined the borders incorrectly before because it just was simply too long. I think hopefully people will listen in on this and say, we're not saying that everything that we were doing should be thrown out. It's just adjust the definition of all of those things to be closer in. Yeah. And the levels of commitment. And again, we, we started this conversation talking about vocabulary, right? It's about the yeah. right vocabulary. Right? When we use mm-hmm. words like requirements, Like like my friend, my friend, Jeff Patton always jokes, like he learned when he was a young, a young software developer that requirements meant shut up. (laughs) 
right? Mm. Like, do what you're told, basically, right? But when we mm. use words like that, it, it feels like something is required. When we use a word like assumption or hypothesis, there's right? more freedom. We have the freedom to change course. We have the freedom to be agile. And so it's about redefining, like, we're going to do all the same stuff we'd like, to your point, we're going to do all the same stuff we did before. We're just going to do less of it more often with the humility to change our minds in the face of evidence from the market. That's it. Oh, that's a very scary proposition for a lot of people. But- <laughs> yeah, it's terrifying. Because that means like if you got the data back, let's say, and you know, you've constrained everything to the extent that makes sense and you shipped something that you thought would bring value to the customer and you found out that it does not deliver value, you could say we're not going to release it. But what happens with all of that time that you, you know, and, and I think that's the scary part is, but, but we did a lot of stuff. What do you mean? We can't just push it out there. We did it already. Right. And like, but it doesn't serve the customer at so all. We solved the wrong problem, a lot of stuff, potentially. Right. right? So yeah. don't yeah. do a lot of stuff, right? That's, that's yeah, the key yeah. here, right? We're going to do less, but more often. And the sooner, mm-hmm. right? But the, again, this is, this mm-hmm. is sort of like organizational agility one-on-one to some extent, right? But the, but the, yeah. the sooner that we can find out that the thing that we are working on does not deliver value, the easier it is to change course or to kill that idea, right? So and like to your point, right? If we spend six months on this and then we find out it doesn't deliver value, that's going to hurt. It's going right? to hurt. Somebody's getting yelled at at the very least and, mm-hmm. and, and potentially someone's getting fired, right? Um, it's rare, <laughs> yeah. but, but maybe, right? But if you spend mm. six weeks or six days mm. on something, to find out that it's not going to work the way that we had thought and you can adjust your thinking, that is a fundamentally different conversation than we spent, we burned six months and 20 people's time on this. Or in the case of your project that you mentioned, two years and 20 Two years, right. Yeah. Yeah. If they go for two years, they re-platform the whole thing and it still sucks. It's just on a modern tech platform. We burned 20 million for no reason. Okay, so we talk definitions. We'll we'll dive into this a bit more. Like, so one of the principles of the Agile Manifesto, which a lot of folks who are in software probably have tattooed somewhere on their body, at least in their brain, <laughs> our highest priority is to satisfy the customer through early and continuous delivery of valuable software. Mm-hmm. Let's talk about value. Because oftentimes businesses will say, well, we need to deliver business value or we need to deliver customer value. And maybe that definition is a little too loose. Let's make this very, very clear and plain for everyone to understand. How would you define value, Jeff? Yeah, great question. So, so look, value is, as they, is it, as they say, is in the eye of the beholder, right? So it depends on who says it, what their job title is, and how high ranking they are in the organization, oh, right? So, so literally, like you can have a thousand different definitions for value inside inside an organization. To me, you know, I, I'm fairly aligned with the Agile Manifesto description, right? To me, value is positive impact on the behavior of our customers, right? We, we have, we have positively impacted the behavior of our customers. We've made them more successful. That's when we've delivered value. I wrote something recently where I said customer value and business value are the same thing. You hear that all the time. Well, is, is, this is business value and this is customer value. And again, I, t- I try not to speak in absolutes and there's always nuance to all this stuff. But generally speaking, right? If you are optimizing for business value, something that makes the organization money, but does not provide value to the customer, then you are at odds with your customer, right? It's kind of like, 
I was reading, a, I saw a tweet this weekend from, uh, from Monica Lewinsky of all people, right? Cause it kind of went viral. And she said she was just shopping in a store somewhere, some, some store, and she just wanted to buy something like, you know, like some cream or a, I forget what it was. Um, and she goes, when I went to the register, they asked me for my name, my address, my phone number, my email, like to create this account. She goes, I just came in to buy this one thing and leave, right? The, the transaction is money for product. That's, that's the simplest, easiest, most customer friendly transaction. As soon as you kind of create these obstacles for customers that hurt the user experience, but in theory are providing business value because now you have a profile of this mm. person in your system who didn't want to do that. They just wanted to come in, buy something and leave, right? You're optimizing for the wrong thing. And so again, I'll just say it again. To me, it's a positive, measurable impact on the behavior of our customers. In other words, we've made them more successful. Yeah. And I think that takes two forms, right? But oftentimes we focus on the first, which is fuel, getting them to do something that our, was our idea and we'll promote that to the hilt. But to your point, especially in this case with Monica Lewinsky, like she stood there and she was confronted with friction rather than the fuel. Like the fuel was, I have this need. You've marketed this product to me. I had awareness about it. It looks like it's going to do its job. I'm going to go procure it or purchase it. And then at that intersection of I'm about to buy it, you just put a bunch of friction up in service of you, yeah. the business. Yeah. Now look, th- I think we do that a lot. Yeah, absolutely. Look, and there there are situations where there are legal and compliance issues, right? So if you're an if you're in online yeah. finance or online gaming or gambling, right? There's a whole lot of um, what they call KYC, right? Know your customer type of stuff mm-hmm. that you need. You like you need that information before someone can transact in the system, right? You can't just let anybody place a wager online, right? You can't just let anybody open up a bank account, you know, like they'd have to be of age, right? I'm just saying like they have, they have to meet certain requirements in order to open up a bank account or, or that type of thing, right? And so that kind of friction is necessary to create a safe, secure, trustworthy customer experience. But other than that, to your point, introducing that friction for the purpose of business value that doesn't actually mm. add to the customer experience, I think you're at odds with your customer at that point. It's worth asking why you're doing that. Hopefully folks out there are thinking about their processes now and saying to themselves, are we serving ourselves? Or are we serving the customer? And if it's not the latter, then maybe you need to rethink that. Save for specific experiences, like you said, that are probably either regulatory or in service of this grander environmental goal, like safety or security. And look, I think it's important to, to remember that like we, we talked a lot about value in the context of consumer-facing teams. It's worth also rem- remembering that internally-facing teams, teams that produce services and tools for the company itself to use, are also in the, in the business of serving their customers. It just happens that their customers are in, in-house. They're other mm-hmm. development teams, they are the staff, they are executives. And so really understanding whether or not you're making them successful is equally as important as the teams that make consumer-facing products and services. Your life's work, it seems like helping teams, at least initially with this lean UX idea, now we're seeing all kinds of businesses take on agility. Design thinking is something that businesses do. And I remember reading once that you saw that teams were pulling apart 
because tech teams are doing this agile stuff, product teams are learning lean so that they can uh, reduce waste, design teams are learning, you know, what things they should prioritize and the things they need to research to provide that solution to the customer. So we're doing a bunch of stuff and we're hiring these practices and processes. And I really liked how you you think about this and I want you to kind of talk through this with us. What are the jobs to be done if we were to apply like the jobs to be done idea or a method a method to hiring all of these different practices and processes? Why are we doing that? Uh, there's, there's there's why we should be doing it and why organizations think they're doing it. I th- let's let's do both. I think that's worth a mention. For example, I think when we think agile, everyone wants to go have greater velocity. Like that's right, thing, faster. Right? Yeah. Let's so, go so, faster. Right. So that to me is is mm. like agile anti-pattern number one. And it's, the, it's mm. I think it's the most egregious error that organizations make is they, they hire agile to go faster. Agile does not necessarily, not that it shouldn't, but it's it's not the goal. The goal of, of agile product development is not to move your organization, like to allow, I'm sorry, to enable your organization to deliver software faster. In fact, I would argue that agile product development is designed to enable your organization to learn faster. And that gets lost. So organizations hire agile for velocity, exactly like you said. And we've got teams that are then managed to velocity. In fact, I was interviewing, I was doing some discovery work for a client last week. And this one person I was speaking to said, our scrum masters are the points police. That's the term that they used, right? Which is did we, you know, burn down enough points this sprint or more points than last sprint? And that has merit and that had that gets rewarded inside the organization. And I think again, this is this is a misunderstanding of why we're hiring Scrum or or Agile. Look, the the motto for Scrum is inspect and adapt. It's not ship and ship again, you know, or whatever, right? Ship and ship some more. It's inspect and adapt, right? So what did we learn and how do we change? How do we adjust based on that? So I think that's, that's part of it. And I think, uh, and then you think about sort of these other processes, design thinking has been a, a silver bullet, a seeming silver bullet for organizations for a long time now. And again, I think, I think it's a misunderstanding. Uh, it's a misunderstanding. There's a belief that if we somehow apply design thinking, we'll start to build all these amazing products and services. Again, it'll, it'll help and it might start to, to start to bring a bit of empathy and customer centricity to the culture of the organization. But the real goal is to change the culture of the organization to one that is focused on assumptions, testing, learning, understanding the customer, putting the customer at the center of, of the process. And I think a lot of that gets lost in translation simply because it's difficult. It's, it, these are big changes for organizations to make when they come from a world where there is a top-down structure, the people at the top are expected and are used to providing all of the answers, and the people who are not at the top are basically used to carrying out those orders. And what's interesting about agile and design thinking and lean startup is that because they enable learning philosophically, they're all the same. I mean, practically they're, mm. they're, they're use different words and different cadences and perhaps different tools here and there, but um, philosophically they're all the same. And so their goal is to build evidence into the process. It's to validate or invalidate, to test our ideas. And of course, 
as I mentioned before, it's too much volatility. And so we are going to be wrong. It's going to happen for everybody, right? And so the question is, how ready is the organization to be wrong? How ready is leadership to be wrong? And the answer is most of the time they're not. And because of that, these tools get neutered, their efficacy is impacted significantly, and we focus on things like velocity, right? Making more stuff faster rather than learning faster. Something that I'm curious about, because I have, I don't know if I've read it in your work, I've read a lot of your pieces, is the roadmap. A lot of organizations are governed by their roadmap, which is a list of things, arguably, that they're expected to do with some given time frame, and these teams are going to be assigned to producing these things. And we often hear organizations tend to devolve into these feature factories. Can you talk about your thoughts on the roadmap and then this conversation of how this works with OKRs? Because I think that's something that might be a bit elusive for a lot of people. They're like, but we have a roadmap. And then you're asking us to do this OKRs thing. How are we supposed to marry these things together? Like, I don't get it. One is outcomes, one's outputs. What's going on? Yeah. So so the roadmap comes out of planning season in many cases, right? Hey, we've got got the 2022 roadmap. People are going to producing that right now. Here's what we're going to do next year. The interesting thing is, again, because so much time and effort and negotiation goes into these roadmaps, they tend to be fixed. They tend to, people don't want to change them because they put so much effort into creating and and getting them approved. And so we end up with fixed time Mm -hmm. and fixed scope management structures, which breaks agility, reduces the bandwidth for product discovery and customer centricity and all the fun stuff that we've talked about so far, doesn't get a real chance to shine and make things better. So then you're right. So the question becomes, well, and then, okay, great, Jeff, and how do we actually manage this? Well, there's a couple of things. First of all, we treat the roadmap as a living document, number one. It's not set in stone. It's not carved in stone. It's our best guess about what we're going to do in the coming months. Now, like planning, it's pl- this is planning, right? Let's let's be honest. This is this is sort of the artifact that comes out of planning, right? We can make a certain level of commitment in the short term, right? For the next quarter, we've got a pretty good guess about what we're going to work on, right? So here are ten hypotheses that we think we're going to work on next quarter in service of a specific objective and quarterly OKRs. I'm sorry, quarterly KRs, right? So the object the objective is the team's mission, and that certainly can be an annual objective. We can say like over the course of this year, our goal is to become the most user-friendly e-commerce experience in Europe, something along those lines, right? Now we've got a key result for Q1 and the key result is going to have a series of behavior changes in it, outcomes as our metrics. And we're going to commit to those on a quarterly basis. And then the team is going to come up and say, okay, great. For Q1, we have a pretty good guess based on everything we've done so far, that these 10 hypotheses are the things that we're, we're planning on working on. Okay, great. And and in Q2, in the next quarter, we've got a few other guesses that are a bit riskier and a bit larger in scope. So we're going to punt those out to Q2. Beyond that, beyond a six-month horizon, it gets very, very murky very, very quickly. Nine months, maybe you've got an idea about one idea, something you're going to push out about six months for some reason. But beyond that, you know, if, if you're planning with any kind, like if you're planning in, you know, nine to 12 months into the future, the level of confidence that you have in those ideas drops significantly, whether you admit it or not, right? There's just no way to know what's going to happen between now and then, as we talked about before, there's just too much volatility and too much change. And so 
we make a plan. The plan has a higher level of certainty and commitment up front and a lower level of commitment and certainty as we move further downstream. Now, again, we are committing to hypotheses, right? We are committing to key results and we reserve the right to kill those hypotheses if it turns out that they do not further our progress towards the key results for this quarter. And then on a quarterly basis, we check in. Again, what did we work on? How many of the 10 hypotheses did we ship? Well, we shipped four of them. Cool. What happened to the other six? Well, we've got three left in uh, sort of testing that haven't really proven whether or not we should actually invest in software. So we're going to carry those forward into Q2. And then we have three that, and we, we have two that we, we killed because the evidence said there's no way this is going to help us out. And we've got one we didn't get to. So we're going to carry that one over into Q2. And so essentially at these quarterly check-ins, you're using evidence to build a plan for the next cycle. In this case, in this case, a quarter and maybe improve a little bit of the, of the stuff that you're looking kind of two quarters and three quarters out. And so we're kind of shifting in time as we collect evidence. And basically, the, the key results are on a quarterly basis, right? So you're checking in quarterly. You're saying, does, did we hit the key result? Does it still make sense to work towards it? Are we ever going to hit it? Those are all good conversations to have. And then we decide what to do. The best way I know how to describe this, like the best metaphor I, that I've, I've kind of come up with over the years, it's like, it's like walking through a fog. If you've ever walked through a fog or driven through a fog, you know that you can see like maybe three or four steps ahead of you but you can't see 10 steps and you can't see 20 steps ahead of you. So you're not just going to go running full speed ahead into the fog and hope that you don't run into a, a wall or fall off a cliff or something like that. You're going to go slowly. And after you go three or four steps forward, the next three or four steps are revealed, right? And if there are no obstacles, terrific. You can keep going another three or four steps forward. But at some point that, you know, smaller batch progression you're going to pause at the end of that. And you're going to be like, oh crap, there's a brick wall in front of me, right? Good thing I didn't go running headfirst into this, right? Uh, should I take a left? Should I take a right? Should I go back the other way, right? Pivot, kill the idea, whatever it is, right? But you're going to adjust course because you've learned something new along the way. I think road mapping and planning works exactly the same way. The measure of success, the definition of done for us is not, did we ship the 10 things in the roadmap? It's, did mm. we hit our KRs? All of us now, I think, especially the folks who have been working for software companies who have adopted OKRs, understand at least the mechanics of them, like how to write good ones, how to align them, and so on. But there's not very much conversation about what happens after OKRs. I want to get a little bit more concrete about what is after. Can you talk through like what you think that looks like? How organizations can utilize OKRs is is clear, like there there's value there. But then, Jeff, then what? What happens after? What do we do? Yeah, so this is, this is really interesting because I think a lot, of, uh, a lot of organizations are adopting OKRs and they're adopting Agile. And if they do it correctly, they plan work with OKRs, right? There is no indication of what to make if you do OKRs correctly. If you write a good objective and key result statement, there are no features in there. I'm a very, very strong believer that output does not belong in your key results. That disagrees with some of the very popular uh, material out there today. For example, if you've read Measure What Matters, John Doerr absolutely is okay with putting key results. I'm um, output output in your key results. I am not. I believe that as soon as you do that, you get to uh, you're back to waterfall. Fixed time, fixed scope. 
like we'll be the number one e-commerce destination in Europe. And the key result is we'll ship the mobile app by the end of Q1. That's mm. fixed time, fixed scope. It's not, it's not a behavior change. So if you do your OKRs correctly, there are no features in there. Now teams are used to getting features, right? They're used to being told, we'll build the mobile app and make it blue and get it done by the end of Q1, right? That is, that is a very common way that work gets framed and assigned to teams. If all of a sudden that goes away, you're going to have a lot of teams who are going to look at you as, as their boss and say, what should we make? What do you want us to build, boss? And, uh, and the answer is they don't know and, and you don't know, right? And so the, they, what happens after OKRs is product discovery. It's a practice. It's design thinking. It's lean startup. It's lean UX. It's, it's product discovery. It's, it's, it's an exercise in determining what your hypotheses are. So it's an exercise in, in hypothesis writing and then testing those hypotheses as quickly and as cheaply as possible to understand what you should actually invest time building software for and what you should discard. And the problem with product discovery is a lot of organizations don't know how to do it. That's number one. Like there's just the skill set isn't there. They know how to write code. They might know how to design software, but actually doing research, it's research. Let's be honest. They don't know how to do it. Number one. And the other problem is organizations that do know how to do it often won't allow it to happen in any kind of meaningful way. And by meaningful, I mean, mm. they may they may allow the discovery work to take place if they don't get in the way of it, but any feedback that comes back, particularly feedback that contradicts the plan or that contradicts a popular or a heavily compensated opinion, that usually just gets kind of brushed aside and discarded. And that's a big problem. So product discovery is what happens after OKRs. And it's, it's lean UX. It's the process of, of going out there and declaring your assumptions about what you think you should make and how you think you should make it. And then testing those ideas to make sure that it is something you should invest in. It's something that will move your KR forward. And if it doesn't, then we kill that idea and we try something else. And that, that's a big deal um, for organizations because they'll say, okay, we have our key results. Now let's, let's sort of reverse engineer our backlog so that we hit these goals. And then again, there's no guarantee that just coming up with a set of features is going to, is going to achieve that. You've got to build experimentation, research, testing, and learning into that process. And now I think there hopefully will be books that come out about <laughs> this, how, what's next, hopefully. Is that on the horizon for you? I think so. I've been, I've kind of been writing in public, you know, I, I blog every week and I, um, a lot of the blog posts in the last few months have been about OKRs. And so this is me testing my hypotheses to see if there is interest in these ideas, specifically in which ideas. And it's me trying out explaining my, my explanations and my ex sharing my experience and trying to build a vocabulary for this kind of stuff. And so those, those are my experiments. Those are my content experiments. And so far they've been going pretty well. And so I, I'm encouraged and I, I, I'm considering writing an OKR book next year. And currently I'm writing it in public. So if you're interested in that book, it's on my blog in pieces right now. Just search OKR on my blog and go, go to work. It's all there. Very, very good. Definitely practicing what you preach as they say. Yep. Okay. We're going to get into some quick fire questions. Okay. The first is, what is your dream? And if it has an associated deadline, what would that be? My personal dream is to is to open and operate a, a rock and roll nightclub 
get back to my rock star days. And so if, if I can't be on stage, at least I can help put other people on stage. And then, you know, like Sunday nights could be my night <laughs> since it's my place. Uh, that, that's still my dream. I have a few friends here in town where I live, uh, who, who actually operate venues in town and they, they look at me and they're like, why would you ever want to do that? <laughs> we, we want, we want to do what you do. <laughs> you want to do what we do, but that's, that's my, uh, that's, that's my personal dream. And professionally, look, professionally, I'd like to have an impact. I'd like, I'd like people to say, I'd like people to say that the work that I've done with them or the stuff that I've written or the, you know, has, has actually made them more successful at work, able to do a better job, um, both individually as a team, as an organization. To me, that's, that's how I know I've delivered value. What do you appreciate about your team or the people that you get to work with or write with? So like, I, I'm, I'm an individual practitioner these days. And so I, I rarely work with a team, although I do enjoy it when it happens. I've had a business partner, a writing partner, and a friend in Josh Seiden now for a long time, for about 12 years. And I truly appreciate working with him. The best part about working with him is that, is that we have complementary qualities, which is really, really great. So if you're looking for a partner, finding somebody who has complementary qualities. So for example, I'm a, I'm a, you know, jump out of the airplane and figure it out on the way down kind of personality. And Josh is like, hold, shouldn't we put on parachutes before we jump out of the airplane? Right. And so that's, and that works out really, really well. So, uh, because I, like, I will pull him to go faster and he'll pull me to slow down a little bit. And so we end up sort of in the middle and it's great. And there's, there's there's a level of trust and honesty in our relationship that I truly appreciate. Even after a dozen years of working together, starting businesses together, writing books together, you know, every now and again, I'll do something or he'll do something where he'll say, actually, you know what? That bothered me. Or, you know what? I feel like on that engagement, even though I wasn't involved, I created that content. And so, you know, you should kick me up a, a percentage of that or whatever. And I'm, I'm thrilled that we can have those conversations in the spirit of transparency and honesty and friendship and maintaining a, a fantastic multifaceted relationship. Cause I, I do consider him a good friend as well. I hope that other folks that are listening and they're thinking about working with someone else, it, it can be done y'all. It can. And it can be done well. That's awesome. It can. And last one. What's top of mind for you these days? So the third edition of Lean UX just came out. And so it's been, mm-hmm. it's been 10 years since Lean UX, kind of the whole Lean UX thing started. And I'm grateful that there's still demand and audience and a desire for this content, but it frustrates me that there's still demand and an audience for this content. Like I, you know, why haven't we made more of an impact? Why hasn't this gotten better? Why isn't this changing? It's been a decade, right? The Agile Manifesto has been around 20 years at this point. And I know stuff takes time and I know people take time, but 10 years feels like a good amount of time. Right. And so I'd like to see more change more quickly. That's to me, that's critical. When I think about that, I, it makes me consider that there needs to be a reason and maybe people haven't bought into the why until now, or most recently as a result of all the things that have happened in the last two or three years. Maybe. We'll see. I mean, look, it's, I, and, and maybe it's a generational thing. Maybe. Hmm. Right. Maybe as, you know, sort of the, the current batch of managers and executives from the last 20 to 25 years age out hmm. <laughs> of, of the workforce and folks who came up digitally native sort of age into those leadership positions, we'll see some differences. Maybe, maybe, I don't know. Like you, I'm hopeful. Yeah. I'm hopeful. Yeah. 
I think that makes lots of sense. Well, thank you so much for being on the show. This has been a really, I don't know about you, but I, I felt like it was a very rich conversation. My pleasure, Jenny. Thanks for having me. That's it for this episode of Dreams with Deadlines. Thanks for listening. If you liked today's episode, please subscribe and share. Show notes can be found on gtmhub.com slash radio. If you want to learn more about our product and services, head out to gtmhub.com. If you have questions that you'd like answered on the show, shoot us an email at radio at gtmhub.com. Tune in next time.